All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Alumless. My name is Ryan Catherwood. That gentleman right there in the other box on the screen for you listeners is Mr. Chris Marshall. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. Good to see everybody. Yeah, it's always great to see you and uh, catch up for Alumless. Um, it's a regular on our schedule. It's always fun to keep it on there. And we've got a great guest today. Yeah, uh, fun. Those of our listeners know that we are a show that we specialize in the area of alumni and donor engagement strategy within university or educational advancements. I should say broader than just universities, right? Uh, educational more broadly. Mm -hmm. uh, so thanks for making us part of your routine by checking out Alumless uh, by podcast or here on LinkedIn Live. We also stream on YouTube. So if that's your preferential choice uh, for another time. Definitely check us out there. But um, we are live today, which we try to be every other Friday, 1130. Uh, sometimes we do pre-tape our episodes, but live today, Chris, with our with our special guest, uh, Trisha, some from the Indiana University Alumni Association. We'll bring her out in just a minute. But, um, you know, since the last time we had the chance to chat, we had our Thanksgiving festivities we have the holiday season coming up. I know alumless listeners want to know um, <laughs> some fundamental questions about you. Things like real tree, fake tree, uh, favorite item over the Thanksgiving meal. Um, do you do Elf on the Shelf or not? And if so, are you the person that is tasked with hiring that little thing every night? Um, so I know these are, you know, pressing questions that people want to know about, but you're just being kind to me, Ryan, but uh, Thanksgiving favorite turkey. Just love turkey. <laughs> um, white or dark? Uh, I go white meat, but I'll have okay. a dark too. Okay. Um, Christmas trees, though, in the Marshall House, um, if anybody's ever met my wife, they know the answer to this question. It's not which tree do you have, it's trees. We have two real and four fake up as of right now, and more are coming, I suspect. Wait, how many? <laughs> the kids have them in their rooms. We have one in our bedroom. We have them in the family room, living room, in the wow. foyer of the house. It's It was up to 12 one year. It was her record. So that might be um, the most festive household I've ever heard of. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then Elf on the Shelf, not only do we have Elf, we have two Elves. We have Pip and Lizzie, one for my son, one for my daughter, Ten and Daughter's 10, son's 12, and in our house, Christmas is still that magical thing, and yeah, uh, it all plays. How about in your house, Ryan? You have three. Yeah, We have three three kids. The one who's kind of out of uh, the, kind of gets the, you know, the inside thing, and he's yeah. trying to not give it away. How old are So 10, 8, and 2. So the 2-year-old, okay. she's like, I don't know what's going on. I like the yeah. bright lights on the Christmas tree. <laughs> the 8-year-old is, is still, but she's very skeptical. She's like, so you're, you know, this... So the elf really moves at night, you know? It's like she knows the answer. It doesn't. We move it, but she's not willing to go there yet, you know? Yeah. Uh, My wife does most of the moving of uh, Lizzie and Pip in our house. Occasionally, I one year I built a Lego model, like a chimney, and put Pip in it. That was a, my big yeah. contribution. So. <laughs> You're creating a scene with it, right? My daughter has high expectations for the scenes. <laughs> um, but look, as we're headed into the holiday season, you know, that uh, means an end to the fall semester. Uh, this was a semester that was completely pretty much unencumbered by COVID-19, I think, in terms of programming, in-person events. And it really felt like pre-pandemic this fall for most people. 
um, it felt like things were back to where they were uh, pre-COVID times. And I have to admit, I, I also seen alumni teams revert to pre-COVID teams. Are you feeling this uh, pre-COVID routines? Are you feeling the same way? Should that be a good feeling? Should that be an ominous feeling? How should we feel about all that? Yeah, it, it, I think it's both, really. Um, there's some good about that, and getting back in person is a good thing. But uh, when it goes back to be the automatic, call it the eventathon, where we just go back to the old way of everything we did, is not a good thing. So it's a little bit of mix. And the schools that are doing it well are, are doing them in hybrid formats, where you take your your most important content and you and you put it in a, in a virtual way, but also in a live audience. That's that's not an easy thing to do it well. You have to have really produce it well. You can't just throw a camera in the back of the room and expect to have a virtual event. Um, the other stuff that I'm seeing the schools that are doing the best on this is leading with content and really good content delivered by really good speakers works both in person and digitally. And if you have a, ser a series of speakers, alumni or faculty or both, even students, where you're delivering a digital only experience to your alums, people are still showing up for those. It's got to be good content with good speakers. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, still a lot of act, lot more activity on social media, uh, expanding out to different channels. Um, and, and frankly, do, the other story I've seen play out, Ryan, is they're doing some of the in-person stuff a little different. And it's still lingered from COVID. I have a client who had to do a reunion, make up from 20, 21, did a reunion in 22. So they said, let's just do all three classes. We'll do the zeros and fives, the ones and sixes and the, and the twos and sevens all at once. And it was a ton of work, a huge lift, as you can imagine. But the alumni loved it. They, it's the cluster model that some schools do use, but this school did every five years, no matter what. And they did this clustered model because sort of catching up from COVID. And alumni were saying, we should do this all the time. This is the way we should be going forward. So COVID will still have influence as we go forward. So event management and event planning, I think, will, will switch slightly as well as for the places that we're willing to. But we can't go back to that old then event, event after event after event. Let's bring in our guest, though. She's going to have lots of really good ideas about this stuff. So. That sounds good. That's why we brought, uh, invited this awesome special guest. So she's full of great ideas. She's an innovator in the space. Uh, we'll, we'll bring, let's bring her out right now. Um, let's add Drum roll. Hello. <laughs> hello. She is. Trisha Revere Stumpf, it's great to have you on Alumnus. Thanks for joining us on this Friday. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, friendly reminder to our friends watching us live on LinkedIn. If you do have a question for uh, Trisha, uh, myself or Chris, but particularly Trisha, yeah. uh, be sure to say hello in the comments and don't be afraid to pose that question. If we get to it on the live show, we'll try, but if not, certainly on the podcast version of Alumless. So Trisha, let's talk. Um, you know, you and I have had a chance to get to know each other a little bit over the last year. You are the chief executive officer of the Indiana University Alumni Association, a, a role that you have were appointed to uh, this past year, which is incredibly exciting. Congratulations on that. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, that particular appointment in the bonus section. But uh, what do you think about as an engagement practitioner um, that you've learned during COVID that's sort of no longer applicable? You know, how yeah. do you think about some of the lessons we may have learned or Good. that we, we might choose to ignore? about uh, after coming out of COVID. Before you answer, I want, if you don't mind, Trisha, if you could explain to the listeners the scope of the operation that is IU. 
I think it's good for folks to understand. Sure. <laughs> There's no yeah, one other like this out there. So yeah, yeah that's no probably a good idea and a good reminder. So uh, 760,000 alumni worldwide. So one of the largest alumni bodies that we're working with. Uh, and then also we're very decentralized at IU. So we're a central operation that are trying to um, really provide a lot of support to those schools and those units, those campuses. We have campuses around the state of Indiana and a robust online campus, which is a whole nother episode of Alumnus probably. I'm engaging those online alumni. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, really complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, 51% are in the state of Indiana. So there's a lot also not here. So seven, seven thousand alumni, a decentralized model. You have staff in something like 27 of the 32 schools and seven campuses. So really oh, yeah. simple structure. Simple. So go back to Ryan's question. What did you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in Chris, that yeah, you hit it uh, right on the head. And a lot of things that we've been talking about here, you know, we were in the relationship business. So those handshakes and the hugs that we thought uh, pre-COVID, yeah. uh, but we can do it on Zoom. And I think we can be successful virtually. And a lot of us, I think, got a lot more confident in that space during uh, the pandemic. And then there was that talk, like Ryan said, of hybrid events and how we can do it both and we can do all of it. We can do it in person and virtual. And wait a second, it's hard. Uh, it's really hard yeah. to do it well virtually. It's expensive. It's resource heavy. You can't just put the camera in the back of the room. You're um, running two events simultaneously. So we've had a lot of questions about, is it worth it? Or what are we trying to get out of a virtual experience um, or an in-person experience? Or what does it mean to do it hybrid for us? We learned we could do it, but do we really want to continue on that course? Or how do we make it the best experience possible for those alumni? Do you think it's because we saw diminishing returns on the virtual events that we were doing? Like it was just kind of frustrating to watch. You know, Zoom fatigue. Right, people, right? Yeah, and we've yeah. talked about that. We'll talk about the conference I was at um, earlier this week later, but we've talked about that a lot. They're seeing less and less people. It has to be produced really high, yeah. highly for people to be interested and spend that time. People have reevaluated their priorities and what they want to do and how they want to reconnect with their uh, university or their alma mater. And so, yeah, I, we're, I think we're really seeing that. Well, what are uh, we've Chris and I have had the chance to work with you over the last little while um, as partners with CMAC, but and so we know quite a few of the interesting organizational changes that you've been making there at the IUAA. But um, perhaps you could share a bit more about your relationship, your partnership with the Indiana University Foundation, uh, led by our friend JT Forbes, and also. You know, how are you thinking about the idea of building an integrated advancement model, what we've sort of framed our show around this week? Yeah. So again, it's complicated at IU. So we're a 501c3 at the association. We're also part of, you know, Department of Indiana University. And then we also have the IU Foundation that works as to maximize private uh, philanthropy and private support for Indiana University. Uh, so I would say we do have a bit of a history here. In the last decade, um, JT, so my predecessor and now the president of the IU Foundation, uh, and his predecessor, Dan Smith, really worked uh, very diligently and smartly and closely together to consider how we as advancement support Indiana University uh, and what that looks like and how we can be work smarter together, even in some of the back office functions like IT. We don't need to help desks for our alumni, those sorts of things, uh, just working more efficiently and smarter with the resources we have. And I'm really grateful for that uh, framework and groundwork that they laid together about how some of our teams can naturally work together 
uh, in the work that we do. So more recently, um, gosh, just in the past six months, uh, we have brought together our marketing teams uh, as well as our annual giving team uh, under one umbrella. So uh, three different teams across two organizations to kind of dream big dreams together um, about how we uh, work together and how we really importantly, stay focused on our constituents. How can we be alum-centered, again, in that content, uh, what we're sending out, uh, but also the annual giving work and how annual giving works in parallel and with our alumni engagement work. So really, as we try to be alum and donor-centric, how do we come together uh, and focus um, on our goals and efforts, our resources uh, together as one? So that's been a big uh, shift over the last just couple of months. We're still early in it. Yeah. Yeah. Her Herculean effort, actually, to do what you're doing to, to unite teams across two organizations like that. I think you and JT are nicely positioned to do that because yep. uh, you know each other so well over the years, have a lot established a lot of trust. And I would imagine that's kind of a necessary ingredient it to is. take on such an ambitious merger project, if you will, that brings yeah. the two organizations together while keeping them separate. That's exactly right. We're not merging organizations. We're still separate on 501c3s and have our boards and our missions. Uh, but I think it is trust. And we've talked a lot about that with our um, board members and our staff, that this may not work at other times or this may not, you know, uh, work under other conditions, but because of that trust and the history and and the support we have um, and the trust that we have, uh, it does certainly make a difference, that history. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, well, what is, would you say has been the most difficult aspect of this merger we've talked about or about other realignments yeah. that you've been working towards? I know there's been a few. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, you know, just change management and working with uh, humans and, you know, brings up a lot of hurdles. Um, I would say... I think the most difficult in this has really been helping staff at all levels understand the why, um, how they fit into the bigger picture, and how we really can come together and build one team. Again, this was three disparate teams, two organizations, all those structures in place, but the why and why this is better uh, and that big picture vision that we're trying to um, instill and that we're how we're trying to be alum and donor centric across this and instilling that confidence and trust in me as a leader, having that trust and that confidence that we are doing the right thing. I've certainly had some moments to be like, back up, what are we doing? Like, stop. Um, but really knowing that this is the right path for our uh, alums and donors and it's the right thing to do, even though it's the hard thing to do. Um and I think also one, one of the big topics for us is that we implemented Salesforce Marketing Cloud and Salesforce Commerce Cloud this summer. And so really to use those tools efficiently and to, um, uh, you know, again, stay donor and alum centric with those tools, we've got to be working together in the same space. So, uh, but it's been, it's change management's real. It's hard. Yeah. Change management is real and it's hard. And as you just, I was going to ask you about the backdrop of all the new technology that you're, you know, working to implement at the same time. I don't, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a hindrance that you're at the same time you're the merger is happening. You're also adopting new technology, but it, it feels like maybe it's an area to unite around. That's exactly right. Uh, we had a very large cross-functional team come together over the last couple of years to build this. And so if we you know, started with that technology piece and started with this big vision and this big goal, and so it has been exactly a way to unite, um, but we have to also keep focused on that big picture uh, to be successful because 
uh, it's hard every day, uh, but it has been a place to unite. I think that's a really good point. A really good point. Yeah. Chris, as, as you think about the Indiana University Alumni Association Foundation, there have been clients for CMAC for, of CMAC for a long time. How would you describe the transformation that you witnessed occurring there and, and what makes the work JT and Trisha are doing so unique amongst the others that you work with? Uh, first of all, you have uh, two of the best people in the business doing it. You, you have JT, who's absolutely brilliant, and you have Trisha, who's the smarter of the two. So put that together and you have a <laughs> good combination for things to happen. Uh, and they're both have become dear friends. And, um, and that's a huge part of it. So uh, the, 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 the main though thing I want to share is that it's such a big place. And when you talk about you know, turning around the ship. This is the aircraft carrier version of it. It's not turning around like it was. It wasn't going the wrong direction. I mean, but we're now thinking about it in the way that Trish describing. How do we make it even better for our alumni to become the work we do? And that takes a turn of an aircraft carrier to make that happen. And they're doing it. So my my message to other listeners is, is if if Indiana University can do it, uh, wherever you are on the spectrum and the scale of schools do that are up where they are in terms of size and scope and all the work uh, down below, there are many other schools who are smaller who should be thinking this way if they're not already. And and with that in mind, let me just, if you don't mind, Ryan, real quick, uh, shout out back to Jenny. Yeah. Thanks for being on with us, Scott, or Eagle at Auburn. Uh, and she loved your comment about, um, we could have a whole conversation about online alumni. Great, I'd love to make that a topic, Ryan. We should definitely do that. And Shana and anybody on the call, if you can think of anybody out there who would be a good person to enter that session, put in a suggestion to us on the chat or, Send us a note separately. We'd love to enter that uh, conversation. And Aaron, I don't know what's happening with your system. I don't think we restarted it. We've been going all along ever since. So, but welcome to the folks who are jumping in on the comments. Ryan, take it over. However, it's entirely possible that there was a glitch in the feed from StreamYard to LinkedIn and it may, it may have started over, but um, we'll know none the, the better. And I think it has done something like that once before. The video plays back fine, but sometimes the feed live stream front onto social media platforms yeah. can not be is not perfect uh but um we'll keep going and i think so the aircraft carrier analysis right of, of turning it also kind of equates to having quite a few resources to work with right i think you may be one of the bigger teams uh that i that i know of what are some of the things that being a big team allows you to kind of experiment with and uh, sort of tackle new areas, maybe do it, do it, uh, ex explore new areas for engagement that others don't have the option for? Oh, that's a really good question because it's interesting. Well, we do have a big team. We have about 55 centrally. So that's a lot. Uh, but we always say we don't have enough. And we don't have, so it's interesting. We all experience that no matter what our size is, uh, we never uh, have enough, I think. Um, I think, you know, as we think about, um, you know, um, being agile in our work processes and thinking about innovation, you know, what does it look like to stand up kind of an innovation center or, you know, some staff that are really thinking about innovation and risk-taking and uh, that's not necessarily common around some of our shops or around universities and uh, bureaucracies. And it takes a long time yeah. to get things done, yeah. but, and I do believe we're innovating every day, but um, what are those opportunities that we have to serve our alumni better or serve our schools and our partners and the mm -hmm. university better? Uh, and how can we really think about innovation in a different 
different way. Um, and also reporting. I feel very, very, very fortunate to have a, a team of people that are thinking about reporting, whether that's um, you know quarterly metrics or strategic plan metrics. That some of those things that get um, you know sometimes quickly overlooked or we don't think about the resources that it takes to do that reporting. I feel very fortunate. Uh, to have a team of people. And again, this is also across both organizations. So we're looking at an advancement reporting function that comes together because again, we're all working in the same space together. Uh, very lucky to have reporting capabilities. Yeah. yeah. In Salesforce, you know, when I, Chris and I talked to a lot of schools and, you know, most of the big schools with resources are moving towards deploying Salesforce marketing cloud, Salesforce CRM, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. I mean, it really does feel like momentum is moving that direction, particularly for the schools who are kind of out in front and have the resources. Um, how have you discovered implementing Salesforce Marketing Cloud has been? I mean, have you? Uh, what does? Uh, what does? What are some of the things that have popped up along the way that other schools who might be a few months, maybe even years behind you? Uh, in that process um, are thinking about it? What warnings or what exciting mm. things could you mention to oh, them? About so this is also probably a whole nother topic for yeah, uh, podcast and alumnus later on, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, doing these, uh, you know, systems integrations and these big opportunities. Uh, so an another topic for it's hard. It's yeah. hard because uh, we're, again, we're changing processes and procedures and people's lanes of what they're used to and trying to think differently uh, and think about how, you know, we can best utilize, um, you know, the technology to serve our needs. And sometimes right now we're using very antiquated technology. So really leaps and you know, starting to think leaps and bounds forward. So we started using um, the mindset of how do we walk, crawl, and then run, and that we're going to launch with a product that we walk, that we crawl with. And that we are just getting started. We have a lot to learn with the technology. Our staff have a huge learning curve. We have these reorganizations that it's going to take, um, you know, resources to back up what the technology can do for us. And so it was a really big mind shift for me, for JT and other leaders to think about, you know, launching with a minimally viable product. Like that's not, you know, we call it MVP, but that's not normal around here because we're going to do it right. And if we're going to build it, it's going to be the best and it's going to be the shiniest object that can do all of the things. So a really big mindset shift that um, we're going to get it off the ground and then we're going to keep iterating through phases to get it um, up and up and running. So giving yourself that grace and that you know kind of place to where it makes sense for you and your team is one of my biggest learnings through this. Yeah. Grace in place, um, patience, right. But with some determination and, um, goals to hit for, for implementation. Exactly. And celebrating those wins yeah. and successes and the good stuff that's coming along mm -hmm. with it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. As you're sort of working to build the integrated advancement model, you know, you've had to grapple with lots of different questions, right? Uh, decisions that need to be made that are less, that maybe make it more integrated as opposed to less. And, and one example, of course, is the idea of the membership. Right. Uh, lots of universities are moving away from the membership model because it's not an integrated uh, strategy. Right. It sort of takes up bandwidth from messages about philanthropy. And um, but yet it is a legacy, a legacy uh, program with people who have expertise on that. And it's a revenue stream that's not insignificant at most places. How are you thinking about things like membership and, and other legacy programs mm -hmm. as you're building a more integrated model? 
that is a real piece of this. And we are uh, literally in the midst of membership model right now. We talked with our board about it last month and talking with our staff about this next week. So we have that membership model that's been on the steady decline, the leaky bucket uh, for the last decade or so, just not as relevant anymore as much as we would like it to be or want it to be or the revenue generation that we um, need. And so with this opportunity with annual giving, um, we are looking at uh, how do we bring all of our alumni under um, you know, one umbrella together that maybe you don't buy the Alumni Association membership, but by giving a $100 donation to Indiana University, you're in with us and you're part of that. Just like the private schools, um, I am uh, graduated from DePaul University and I was part of their Alumni Association from day one uh, just because I'm an alum. And so what does that look like for Indiana University? And again, in the big place, how does that translate uh, and how can we um, bring more people in the fold with us? And again, that's stewardship and that's a lot of different um, opportunities and journeys for our alumni, but really rethinking um, how do we be more inclusive and alum-centric, following them where their passions are, instead of them giving that $100 to us, if they give it anywhere to any fund within Indiana University, how do we expand our membership model and bring more, more people under the fold? That has been years and years long journey as well. Uh, but we're finally, I think in 2023, we're going to do it. Uh, and we're talking with our staff about it next week and, and diving more into all the ramifications of that right now. Just one example. I think there's also, um, you know, as we think about kind of existing constructs and things changing, those affinity programs and those things that, you know, the credit cards and the right. uh, other insurance programs and all the things that we used to offer that used to be really important revenue streams for us are completely drying up. And I know it's um, everywhere yeah. and a lot of other people are seeing that as well. But what does that mean for revenue and what does that mean for um, other streams that we need to build up? And um, and also not wanting to compete with all of the, you know, the asks from annual giving and um, compete with yeah. ourselves in other ways. So, yeah, it's not like you can't use the money from the agreements, but it really does compete with, you know, the bandwidth for sending out communications, yep. you know, and, hey, sign up for this insurance policy as Indiana University Alumni Association is made possible. Well, you could fill that space with something else, something more meaningful, right? And um, well, so Chris, as you you know, looking at other schools across the country, uh, the integrated advancement models is is really important right now. Where are you seeing people teams hiccup on this one? Where where are some of the blockers that uh, exist when it comes to getting more integrated? Yeah, there, there are probably dozens of things, but I as I read the questions in the script beforehand, make like we don't talk about this in advance, but we do. Um, I thought of three things that were really high level for me. Um, number one is is tradition. There, are, our industry is steeped with tradition, and we, the we've always done it that way. Uh, is the is the number one I think on this list is, is getting it past people to think that we can think of be another way doing it do another way and that's the second one which is the entrenched thinking that sits with people real people in the organization sometimes it's staff um, sometimes it's boards or volunteers even who are going to make it hard to do this work uh, so yeah. I've seen that come up quite a bit and then the uh, the third one I have is um, the fear that will will all become about fundraising. And I've seen these models. I've worked in these models and I've built models like this. I've helped public and private, small, large, public, you name it, um, types of schools move into this model. And at the end of the day, it's not all about fundraising. <laughs> it's still about engagement, it's still about broader engagement, too. But it's a more efficient model. It's, uh, I, 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 you know, Brian, you and I have talked about this a lot. And um, 
you know, to, to me, it, it just makes sense for institutions. Everything that Trisha outlined in the direction they're going, I could name about five other schools that are going the same large public university going the same direction for the same reasons that Trisha's talking about. And it, it to me, it just makes more sense. Uh, it's a lot, it's, it's efficient, but the fear of it being all about fundraising at the end of the day, whether it's a staff member or whether it's a board member or whomever saying those things, it's, it's about at the end of the day, really, if I had to put all these into one category, it's about the change, the change that comes and the change management that you need to go through to make it work. Um, yeah. Those are the things that are causing the, the delays or the hiccups or the, um, the, the fear of not even of not even entering into this conversation at your institution. So I wonder also if it's a, there's some messaging or framing to be done to say it better. Like it's maybe it's about creating this broader and inclusive philanthropy experience which includes exactly. messaging. I love the way you describe it, actually. Inclusivity is yeah. the lead on that, right? Yeah, and we've talked a lot about, you know, look at the case um, modes of engagement. You know, philanthropy is one of them and experiences yeah. are one of right. them. Like, they're all important and it's all, you know, we're all at the end of the day trying to reach our alumni where they're at and um, connect with them in ways that they might find meaningful. So, yeah, I completely agree with you, Ryan. Uh, so much more to talk about. Uh, and we're going to do that on the podcast, the bonus section of our podcast, because it is hard to believe that we have already spent 30 minutes talking with uh, Trisha. <laughs> Time goes by really fast. Um, but uh, Chris, maybe you could tee up our next guest before we sign off uh, the live show. So this is one we thought we were going to have a few weeks or months ago, really, um, that we, it's hard to pin down this person, but we've pinned it down. It will be recorded before the holiday break, but it'll be aired on January 6th, I believe, right? Is that that Friday? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Friday, January 6th. The one and only Sue Cunningham, president of Case, will be on the show uh, with Ryan and I to talk about all things advancement. Yeah. So it'll be a really fun perspective to hear from our fearless leader in our industry here. And she's phenomenal. I just, uh, every time I've seen her, I think she's done amazing work for Case. The direction it's going over, the, over her leadership years has been uh, incredible. She's been the leader through a really difficult time for our industry, and I give her a huge amount of credit, and I can't wait to hear her thoughts. So Sue Cunningham, Case. Is and she sent us a, a free copy of the book. So I've been of her recent right. book. Right. Her new book. Yeah, which has lots of great conversations uh, with uh, philanthropy leaders from around the world. Uh, and specifically, we're going to talk about their ideas around alumni engagement and engagement more broadly. That is a surprise to no one, but we will – uh, Pepper Sue Cunningham with some questions about that. But all right. Well, thanks Jenny for everyone for joining us on this Friday. Thanks to Trisha for joining us live. We're going to head over to our Zoom recording room and record our bonus section. And uh, those of you who are listening live, uh, thank you so much. We'll be with you again January the 6th, Friday. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, thanks for everyone for picking up the podcast edition of Alumnus. Great to uh, have you with us wherever you're listening, whether that's in the kitchen while you're making dinner or riding in the car, maybe working out, maybe you're on an elliptical right now uh, or, a, or, a, or a stationary. Like, I'm actually more of a rowing machine guy lately. Rowing machine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like a good rowing machine. I feel like it's a good full body workout. But yeah, we're, we're back with Trisha Revere-Stump from the Indiana University Alumni Association. Uh, she is the new president and CEO of the organization. Uh, I guess CEO, right? I guess pres president is the word we use for the, the head of the board. Um, yep. But CEO. Uh, 
But I was going to mention a really interesting fact, which is that you are the first woman president of the alumni so, yeah. association. Yeah, wow. it's female. And, and so how do you how do you feel about that? Is that something that you think about? I know probably around your the time of your appointment, you were thinking about it more substantively. But now, so yeah. how, do you, how do you grapple with that? Yeah, well, first, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I would have never thought uh, that I would be in the role I'm in now and the first woman. I definitely would never would have thought that. And after 160 years of an organization, it's probably time, time, right. probably time uh, to do that. So yeah, really, really grateful uh, for the opportunity and uh, very humbled uh, to have the opportunity. Uh, and I definitely couldn't have told you, you know, years ago um, that this is where I was headed. I started at IUA about 15 years ago years ago um, and has been just a really incredible opportunity um, and one that has made me reflect a little bit on um, how I support women uh, and uh, underrepresented minorities in the workplace and in the work that we're doing in alumni engagement. Um, I recently presented on kind of career paths and alumni engagement at a case conference, and it really got me thinking about how we recruit to this industry and promote in this industry and the work that we're doing. Um, uh, so yeah, I do uh, continue to reflect on that a bit um, for my organization and just bigger picture, um, uh, the diversity that we want to see in the industry. Um, but it's also made me reflect on some of the things too, that I think it's important. Um, like uh, others may see things in ourselves that we don't see it in ourselves that, you know, you might be right for this opportunity or the time might be right for you, or how do we lean in when doors open for us that we may never be prepared for? Because I certainly uh, didn't see this uh, coming until I engaged in conversations with my uh, supervisor and leader. So yeah, a lot of reflections. That's <laughs> I, would great. Say so. I would say so. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you maybe just to elaborate a little bit more. We we see, Chris, you know, so many shops are having such a hard time hiring right now, right? Yeah. I mean, hiring yeah. people. I think, you know, Chris, the other day you were looking at a candidate pool for a job. And I think you said something like, you know, three out of the 30 uh, <laughs> resumes that were submitted were even worthy of talking to. And yep. we've, things have really shifted. I just wanted to piggyback on what you were saying about looking at those entry points into our space getting more people excited about this field um you know what were some of your thoughts from the from the reflections on that uh, what should we be doing better internships for one right uh bringing students along and not letting them leave until they join our alumni teams yeah. Yeah, and I certainly don't have the kind of magic bullet, and I'd love to hear from others that are um, thinking about this more, because I think as an industry, we can do a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I, I think being really intentional, we do have, you know, a, a student program and um, students that are working and student alumni associations and student engagement and alum from day one, we hear all of that. So what's the intentionality that we're, you know, someone at one point talked with me about, did you know you can work in higher ed? Did you know this is a, you know, a industry that you can do? And I started in student affairs and then found my way to uh, alumni engagement. So just having those conversations with students and, and they're also, you know, I think we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of um, transferable skills from um, corporate and other places that yeah. can be really, really successful and opens up our mind uh, to different things and different ways uh, to do about that. And I've had a, a few really great success stories of, um, you know, it's that mission shift and that mindset shift, but they bring an experience from corporate that has been really beneficial uh, for us to have. Chris, I'd love to hear what you are seeing. Yeah, the, uh, uh, everything you said. So we have these recovering student affairs professionals uh, leading uh, organizations in many places, for one. A couple of places where you have former people come from athletics, me included in that. But uh, what, I, what I'm seeing are 
you know, the schools that are doing this well are, are, are looking far and wide. They're posting everywhere they can. They're being really savvy about the digital, you know, where you can post it in the digital way. Um, but they're also being flexible about location of where you're going to work, home versus in office, hybrid. The, the more remote you are, the more applicants and better applicants you're going to get. I've learned that over the last several months looking at, you know, countless resumes. Um you know, but but also looking out into the the transferable skill set outside of higher ed and outside of nonprofit work, people that have worked in marketing can pick up alumni engagement pretty quickly. And I had a business dean long ago tell me uh, it's a marketing role and you need to understand basic principles of marketing to be successful. And 21 years later, even though I argued with him about that fact, I'll tell you right now, he was right. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, so that's where we're seeing it, that, that marketing, um, you know, those expertise come in. I've seen a few really successful people come into the role. Yeah. With sales. That We've seen sales. a lot of people that don't yeah. want to be doing yeah. that grind in sales and corporate, but yeah. some of those skill sets are really helpful. Yeah. The ability to be confident and aggressively outreach to alumni, scheduling appointments, converting those appointments to asking them to be a volunteer, right? Forget making an ask for a gift. Sure. Uh, just asking someone to be a, a mentor, asking them to be a leader of a of a group, asking them requires you know some determination and some some skills and some sales. I think uh, yeah. selling an idea and um, you know there's there's definitely some cross uh, transferable skills from that set. I would say. Yeah. I have a question for you, Trisha. And so, almost 15 years in the role, the organization has over that time, I'm sure, has changed. Was was JT in the role? Did JT hire you? Is he is he to blame? No. So I was here just about a year or two before okay. him. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we can't give him blame or credit. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so how has it changed? <laughs> and, and and part one, part two, more important to me is how have you changed in that time too? Oh. Gosh, good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. My first day of work, um, I got a car, a company car, because I was going to be on the road all the time. I was working with regional chapters, regional engagement, car and luggage. They gave me an IU luggage. I was like, well, this is a sign. Uh, here we go. We no <laughs> longer have door. cars. We no longer give luggage. We've completely <laughs> changed that mindset. Uh, so yeah, I think just, I mean, if I think about that program alone, our chapter and volunteer management at a regional level has completely shifted. I worked with 30 groups around the country at once. There was a few of us, um, and we've become much smarter, um, how we deploy our resources. Um, we have even started, you know, what does a volunteer, um, an individual volunteer program look like? You don't have to have a board and governance and structures. Mm -hmm. People can raise their hands in bite-sized chunks. And that's been a game changer for us. Uh, so just even the regional level alone, I think we've um, seen tremendous change. Um, I mentioned in the um, earlier podcast, just other affinity programs like the credit cards and revenue generating things completely shifted in the past um, uh, 15 years. Uh, and our um, kind of reliance on those programs has completely, uh, completely changed. Uh, so, yeah, we could talk a ton, I think, about um, changes in the last 15 years. We all probably could. Uh, but for me personally, gosh. Um, so I'm a doer. I'm a C on the disc. I love a good process and a good procedure. And we're going to map it all out. That was me. Um, that's why I was a good uh, balance to JT potentially uh, in that working relationship. Um, so I've had to really make time for myself to think big picture. 
um, build up that vision and that um, kind of those skill sets that I need as a leader and think longer term. Um, I used to say JT's superpower was that he could see five years out and he still can today. And he's pushing us in that direction. So how do I build up those skill sets? Because I was always in the weeds. So um, I've also had to learn to trust my staff. Um, That has been one of the biggest lessons, uh, even of the last six months. They've Mm. got it. We've hired good people, do their jobs. I can stay out of the weeds. I trust them. Lesson one in management right there. Yeah, (laughs) right? And it's really been evident to me and a a big evolution for me to uh, let them do it. And uh, they've got it. um, And and where do I need to deploy my efforts a little bit differently? Yeah. Thanks for the question, Chris. Just a quick follow-up, because I think the the evolution of regional is really interesting. Uh, Maybe you could just expand on that just a little bit in terms of, because I think it's such an important playing a sort of area to be looking at change uh, in, in different ways. It's it's not going away, but regionality kind of means a bit less than it used to, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean for a regional program? And, you know, not as many suitcases, not, you're not getting suitcases. So the implication is, is you're not jet setting around to event after event after exactly. event uh, cha- that, you know, by chapters all over the country. What, what, are, what are the things that you think about now as far as regional engagement? Really good question. So I think the question is, what do we as organizations and institutions need from regional engagement? Why are we doing it? What's the outcome? You know, when when I started, we never talked about the outcome. I was just supposed to go meet with these boards every month and go, uh, you know, engage them. We were engaging volunteers and they found meaning in that. And that was great. And we've I've really evolved that thinking to the why and what does the institution need? And are we um, thinking about those things? And then what's realistic uh, with our staff and our resources? And we're having a lot more honest conversations about that as resources for all of us have really shifted. Um, and then also going back to the earlier topic of integrated av- advancement, what does it look for, like for us together? Um, you know, an individual giving officer that's assigned to the East Coast, what does right. that look like for that person? And then uh, my person that works with the uh, alumni engagement staff that works with the East Coast to work together and deploy together on Boston or deploy together. And we just weren't in that mindset 15 um, years ago. Um, so, yeah, a lot more intentionality, I would say. I, I didn't learn that lesson in mine. I led the Lehigh University program. So it's a 80,000 alumni population, smaller, had clubs and chapters, but it wasn't until I got to Cornell. 250,000 alumni, um, uh, colleges and schools had their own alumni programs, and we were planning an event in San Francisco. And at the event, someone came up to me and showed me two other invitations they'd gotten for the same night in San Francisco from something at Cornell. One was the, a library small event. The other one was a business, the business Johnson Business School. And we all didn't know that the three of us were planning an event on the same night in San Francisco. <laughs> That sounds familiar. <laughs> How about it? I'm sure people are, are, are laughing when they're listening yeah. because this happened at their place. And so we we learned the lesson, the intentionality of of planning and and how do you calendar and how do you coordinate communications and all that. So, uh, yeah, it's a and at your place, I can't even imagine uh, you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of intentionality and a lot of building of those relationships with yeah. those people. Yeah, and trust. Like, come along, let's do Boston huge, together. Huge. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to feature um, Patrick Auerbach from. Southern California in the new year. We, I was just talking to him the other day, and you know, it's January twentieth is his date. Mark it now, January twentieth. Yeah, yeah, and you know, of course, they 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 dismantled their their chapters program, and and that's the way that they talk about it now is it being a more inclusive way to do mm-hmm. engagement is almost without these you know 
smaller organizations in different re regions, right? It's, and for an administrative standpoint, you almost have to go through the chapter leadership if you want to do an event in New York, right? When and and, and then allow them to sort of add their creative to to whatever that's going to look like, and that isn't always the best way to do business, you know? I, yeah. so there's some really interesting sort of opportunities that exist with volunteer-led regional chapters, but then also, is it really the most inclusive way to do regional engagement? Is it give you the flexibility to do new things and so on? But, yeah, we started talking staff-driven and volunteer-supported, complete mindset shift um, to exactly to what, you, to what you're saying. So, uh, yeah. And if you go either side... Good. If you go too far either side on the volunteer versus staff, it, it, it something doesn't isn't right, and it's somewhere in the middle. I think closer towards the staff personally, that where it starts to work, but um, it's a tough balance. I, I want to um, ask you about the aspects of the work that you enjoy the most. We've, we've talked a lot about technology. I'll throw another one into the mix here. So I was at your um, conference last month where you hosted all the staff. So outside, Ryan, so you're, you're going to kick it this. Half a dozen of their staff from the central team there. And they invited everyone else who do, does alumni engagement from around Bloomington campus and every other campus. 105 people in the room. That's not including Trish's team. That's how big it was. So I was asked to speak at that conference. Had a great time. But the uh, wonderful group, by the way, enjoyed the day. But the start of the day was looking at something that I've seen only one other time at a small liberal arts college. Uh, you guys have a kick-ass alumni engagement dashboard, which is a push button visualization tool that can show how engagement's happening at any part, any slice, any dice of the segment population. So you have technology, you have the dashboard. What what gets you the most jazz? And tell us about the dashboard a little bit if you're, oh, if sure. you're okay. Thanks. So yeah, the technology aspects, you know, I like to dream about what we can do and what opportunities we have and how technology might assist us. Um, but I, there's complicated realities with all of that. And our staff always remind me the technology doesn't solve everything. We have to right. have the strategy and we have to have the why. So mm -hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. So what I love the most, um, I really love uh, going back to volunteers, kind of our board and those really invested volunteers that are serving uh, at high level roles for us, um, meeting with them and talking with them. It's a nice dose of energy, um, positivity most of the time. Um, it really boosts me up and kind of recenters me like, why do I do this work? And what, you know, and hearing them and talking with them really um, gives me that um, kind of big picture and, uh, and boost that I need um, oftentimes in that. Um, I also, it's interesting you bring up the summit from a couple of weeks ago, um, Chris, because I really, uh, I really find it important and enjoy talking with and working with and partnering with those staff that are working in those units. I um, you know, in such a big shop um, at Indiana University and big kind of decentralized place, most of the alumni relations happens and alumni engagement happens in those units and in those schools. Yeah. It's not happening here in this building that I'm at today. Uh, so, um, you know, what are they experiencing? What support do they need? I can be an advocate for them and I can, uh, you know, help get them the resources that they need as they're talking with their deans and their chancellors and their leaders. Uh, so I, I think that's a, a critical part of my role that I've really um, uh, enjoyed um, uh, doing. Uh, so the dashboard, uh, so Chris has been along this journey with us, and I owe a lot uh, to him to helping us kind of vision this and keep us grounded in this. I started after the case white paper came out. So that was maybe 2000, 
18 or so. Yep, around there. Um, uh, JT was involved in um, kind of the, the uh, task force that worked on that white paper for case. So uh, we jumped right in and having his leadership um, and having his kind of buy into this uh, was critical uh, for us to marshal the resources that it needed to, to actually create the Tableau dashboard we have today. Um, it's been a long process um, from even the definitions, taking what case um, mm-hmm. put out and what does that mean for our shop and what does that mean for um, again, a really decentralized big place. What are we going to count? Um, how do we start with something versus counting everything? And you, you um, also use the crawl, walk, run, fly there as well. We're, in, we're now starting to walk is what I would describe. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. We still don't have communications built out yet. So we have the other three uh, modes built out, but communications has been complicated. And what, how do we define that? And so again, I think that is a really good point. Uh, we're now after a couple of years with it, I'm actually talking to deans about it. Look at your slice of engaged alumni mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking more centrally about how we can use it to either you know make decisions regionally or uh, in other ways about how we're deploying our resources. So it's certainly has been a journey, um, uh, uh, but really built off that case white paper. If you were to give someone advice on where to start the crawl, what, what would you tell them? Probably just to start. Uh, and just to do it and try yeah, not to <laughs> boil. Yeah, jump in, um, figure out what works for your institution. Uh, try to not boil the ocean because it gets really complicated really fast. But make sure you're talking about the like, why this is important. And, yep. you know, that whether it's that we can talk about the value of alumni engagement work with stakeholders, professionalizing the industry. I think it's a really important kind of um, take on this, especially as we work with our advancement colleagues that are so used to some of this. Um, so why are you doing it? Why is it important? Because um, you are going to need the data team and the IT team and the you know people that are working with volunteers. And it's only as good as what's in our system. That's the battle we're fighting right yeah. now is, uh, you know, the data has to be put in for it to be. The argument against it is that it's it's a pretty, you know, one size fits all sort of everyone counts the same model. But it's the start. It's the crawl when you can visualize and use it to make decisions with and be strategic about it. You get a little bit more into the walk. Um, I've seen people do correlational studies and even causational. And then eventually we're going to get to the point where we're we're in predictive modeling. You cannot get there if you don't have this stuff first. So to be able to know what dials to turn and buttons to press requires this stuff to start. So I think that's where we're headed as an industry. And I think it's important if we're going to be professional, really be an industry, professionalize our industry even further. I think this is the steps that these are the steps that we need to be taking at this point. So I, I love what you've done. And I'm sure others are going to be looking at what you've done. And maybe there's another... Um, uh alumnus where you guys can show off your 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 tool it'd be fun to see it yeah. let people take a look yeah be patient that's my biggest be yeah patient. takes yeah. time yeah for sure yeah it does and um it's but it's well worth it and you're not necessarily going to wrap your arms around all the engagement that's happening right i think that's my yeah. advice to sort of follow up on your question is you want engagement to be happening all over the university in fact you want to empower yeah. everyone that can and want to have their own alumni engagement strategy and to empower them with the resources to do engagement effectively. You'd like them to tell you what they were doing and how that went, right? Uh, but definitely, I think, empowering uh, stakeholders around campus to do engagement to for you to be the conductor, right, of the orchestra from a centralized point. Chris always likes to use the the uh, conductor orchestra. Uh, yeah, I don't do well. I'm not a good music person, but I, I, that usually works. But one other point to connect it back to the first part of our session is that here's a data, two data points, correlational completely, but um, technically there's four data points in two categories here. 
So we know that from using you know, the last four or five years of measuring this, I've seen schools measured even before then, but that event attendees, generally speaking, give at twice the rate and twice the average gift. And volunteers give it three to five times the rate and 10 to 20 times I've seen the average gift. All things that we would have presumed, assumed as, as, as professionals in the business. But when you start to have longitudinal data that can demonstrate this and you show that to boards and to bosses and presidents of colleges and universities, they go, hmm, I didn't realize that. I'd never seen that data before. I presume, again, same thing. But now we're showing that and can show that. And that's a starting that, That's I think that's the walk, personally. We can get to that point. Yeah. The uh, the run and the fly are probably correlational and or causational, I'm sorry, and predictive modeling we're going to get to eventually as well. So you guys are on a great path. And if a big school, again, same thing as the aircraft carrier before, the big school can do what you guys have just done. Yeah. Everybody should be able to do a version of that. So kudos. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure I know any any school that's in a better position to do some of the things we've talked about, which is establishing journeys for alumni and donors, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether you're making decisions about how to reach out to them and what steps would be best for them in an, in their engagement journey with the university, or whether it's a marketing tactic where you're delivering content as a result of that person taking some action. Uh, both of those things are fueled by the technology that you're you're deploying right now. It's fueled by Salesforce, right? It's it's fueled by all the other tools that you have in place and the time that you're spending adding those engagement touch points to your CRM. Like that allows the whole thing to work. Amen, so, brother. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. I, I got one um, last one for Trisha. Yeah, okay. hit it. Um, so a lot of people know IU for one particular reason, and it's, it's 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 called basketball, right? It's a religion in in Indiana. Basketball is a religion. I've learned that from my time. Even they used to host the swimming NCAA swimming championships in Indiana. It was often during the Final Four, and you felt like you were dwarf when you're in Indiana because it was all about basketball. Right? Yes, and, and the Hoosiers are have been known for a while. But let's talk about broaden it a little bit. Talk about athletics and the role athletics plays in engaging alumni at a big institution like yours, your football team had a pretty good season this year and your basketball team, it's better than it has been. <laughs> um, yeah. Basketball team for a long time has been good. What what does that mean? And what does that, how's that impact? And how do you balance that with everything else going on in your world? That is a really good question. Yeah, we're really lucky uh, this season. We have two great basketball teams here in Bloomington on the Bloomington campus right now. And our men's soccer teams in the college cup this weekend out in North Carolina. Uh, so uh, really, really lucky to have that. And it does make a difference. I think we all know that when we see those national championship runs or yep. uh, those uh, Sweet 16 or other opportunities, it makes a difference to the university and admissions or fundraising or engagement or whatever it might be. It's an exciting time, but it is a huge balance. Uh, we get alumni as much as people love the game watch or the uh, gathering before the game, I'd love to see something other than sports. Why do we always focus on sports? What about music or the arts or highlighting our faculty? Um, and at IU, we've got so many campuses and faculty and alumni doing great things. It is a really big um, balance. And I think we try to continue to keep in mind, like meeting alumni where they're at, um, and then also, what is the value that we bring as the Alumni Association? What's athletics doing and what can they do well on their own? What can other places, the foundation or others do well on their own? And then why are we you know, engaging in this or asking our alumni to attend or be part of that or deploy our resources towards something? Because uh, it is about those choices and what's the unique value 
uh, we can bring. So yeah, we all love to be a part of that, uh, but all, all of our alumni aren't there yet. And we may not be positioned in the best place to, you know, support a national championship run or whatever that might be. So but let me bring up a, a very specific example. I started working with you several years ago when it was right around that time, JT was in the role where a decision was made that not every home football game is going to have a major tailgate event that we're going to plan. And that was like, especially yeah. for a big 10, you know, I, you, that yeah. you guys made that call and today still, right. Yeah. We don't doing. do anything pre-game. It was, uh, and it's except uh, for homecoming, kudos, right. Except for homecoming and kudos to JT. We use the data. Uh, what are we seeing? How much is it costing us? How many alumni are actually attending? You know, they want to do their own thing when they're here. Why are we trying every game, very staff intensive mm-hmm. uh, to do something when we could really put all of our focus on homecoming and make it really do it really well? Let athletics do all the hoopla um, every other game, but let us really focus on our audience um, at homecoming. But I, I bet the right tradition. Yeah, I bet there are a large group of people from the big public institutions that they're listening to this going, what? <laughs> you did I what? So. You stopped home games, home game tailgates. Oh, we don't do them on the road anymore either. So what? <laughs> I know the sacred cows. Yeah. yeah. Well, it feels like a great point to leave our discussion for today. Although I'm certain we could continue it. Uh, there's plenty to talk about in the area of athletics engagement. It's connection with regional engagement uh, and so on and so forth. But we'll save it for another day. Um, Last question before we let you go, though, we always ask for inspiration from our guests. You know, where do you find the most inspiration? I heard you talk about the people that you work with, and but do you but do you have um, resources or favorite people or schools that you model off of? What let's leave to listeners with uh, where do you get your inspiration to do good work? Oh, that's a great question. And I really wish we probably all do wish we had more time to do this and read and talk to, you know, other industry yeah, experts. Maybe. And I was like, uh, so I have to be really intentional about it. And, you know, sometimes when I'm on vacation or other points, I want to read that great beach read. I don't want to read the stack of books <laughs> related to being a good manager, or, um, other things that I need to be thinking about in our um, industry. So I have to give myself that grace as well. So finding those bite-sized pieces and those chunks where I can really focus, like the uh, Case Alumni Engagement Strategies Conference, it took me out of my you know, uh, a bubble here in Bloomington and really immerse me for three days. And how do I get the most out of that um, with my peers and the attendees and things like that? So those bite-sized chunks. Um, I recently started listening to um, a podcast um, called Nonprofits Are Messy. Um, Joan Gary, I think, does it. Um, so many great snippets that have mm. kind of reaffirmed and resonated with me um, and what we're going through. Um, so again, not necessarily in the higher ed space, but just reaffirming uh, what we're doing in the um, kind of nonprofit world. And I also really love Glennon Doyle. We can do hard things. Her uh, podcast oh. began right in the uh, pandemic, and that's been uh, kind of a breath of fresh air for me as well um uh through it so yeah those bite-sized chunks when we can this is where you're supposed to say alumless is a great resource and alumless and alumless <laughs> is a great resource that i can get whenever i need right? bite-sized bite-sized 30 minutes available chunks. through your favorite podcast app <laughs> apple podcasts uh, google uh, soundcloud spotify you name it but, that's exactly right yeah there you go. Thank you so much, Trisha. Chris, yeah. good to see yeah. you. We'll, yeah, you we'll wrap things up there. Trisha, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Discussion. Thank you, yeah, guys. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Bye now. Take care. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.